Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is uh, Dr. David Miklowitz. He's a professor of psychiatry in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UCLA Semmel Institute. And we're going to talk about uh, what's called the Bipolar Disorder Survival Guide that uh, he had a hand in. So, David, thank you for being here. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Yeah, no problem. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and what led you to, to work in the areas that you're working in right now. Sure. Uh, well, first, I'm a clinical psychologist. I did my uh, degree, PhD degree at uh, UCLA and then worked at University of Colorado Boulder for almost 20 years and then came back to UCLA in 2009 uh, to develop a program for adolescents and children with bipolar disorder and related disorders. That's been my specialty for years now, has been bipolar disorder, an illness characterized by very high and very low moods that occur in alternating fashion. Uh, my particular interest in this area is in working with families and how families cope with bipolar member and how the person with the disorder gets affected by their family and how their disorder affects family relationships. You know, we've developed a treatment which we call family-focused therapy, or FFT for short, and it has we use it in conjunction with medications for people with bipolar disorder, and it's been found to be effective in preventing occurrences of the disorder and uh, reducing symptom severity among people who are having episodes. What's in First, what types or how many types or kinds of bipolar disorder are they, and how are they characterized? So generally, there are three kinds of bipolar uh, people. There is, are people with the traditional bipolar 1 disorder, which means that they alternate between severe periods of mania and extreme activity, and elated, elevated mood, a decreased need for sleep, uh, sometimes grandiose or inflated thinking, their mind going very fast, speaking very fast, 
and alternating with these very severe periods of depression with fatigue, sadness, loss of interest, sometimes suicidal thinking, feeling slowed down, feeling bad about oneself, uh, and having insomnia. Now, a traditional bipolar one person usually goes back and forth between those two extremes. You can also have what's called bipolar two, where you have major depressions that last, say, several weeks, and more minor uh, periods of elevation that we call hypomanias. The, they have some of the same symptoms as manias, but they're not as uh, as impairing, and they tend to be shorter. Uh, people can notice them. person seems sped up and full of ideas and full of energy, uh, but they're not... Uh, they're not in a state where they're going to lose their job over it or get arrested or end up in the hospital. Oh. Finally, we have a, a category called bipolar, uh, well, unspecified bipolar disorder, which we often see in kids, uh, which is it has the same ups and downs, but they don't tend to last as long. And we're not certain that they're going to develop full bipolar disorder. They may just stay at the level of having brief depressions and brief hypomanias or manias, but it's still impairing. So those are the three kinds of bipolar disorder we see. Mm, okay. Um, so what about in uh, teenagers, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, that range? Yep. Does the uh, does unspecified become specified, or is it still at that point unspecified? That's an interesting question, and, and that has been tested. Um, there are there. It seems that there are about 50% of unspecified teenagers uh, who develop bipolar one or two eventually, but it's mainly those kids who have a family history of it. So if you have early signs of mood instability with highs and lows, uh, which may or may not lead you to see a psychiatrist, if you also have the family history, like a parent who has bipolar disorder, your chances of developing the disorder go up proportionately. Now, the tricky thing in teenagers is knowing what's ordinary teenage behavior versus what's bipolar because teenagers have mood swings. That's one of the key aspects of being a teenager is emotional instability. Uh, and, you know, people, ordinary teenagers have periods of depression and they can be hyper and they can be overly excited, particularly when their friends are there. What we look for are multiple indices of these conditions, multiple symptoms that cluster together, move together, and also are impairing. So whereas an ordinary teenager might cry when they break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, and might not you know, feel good for a couple of days, a person with bipolar disorder is going to be really uh, knocked flat by it and might be depressed for weeks and weeks. Uh, likewise, an ordinary teenager might have a period of being excited um, about something, a uh, trip they're taking or being with friends, but they're not going to be inappropriately excited to the point where they're full of ideas and not able to sleep and uh, 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 speaking very fast and very, very happy or irritable to a point where other people think something. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. 
Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. What about uh, use of drugs or alcohol, especially in teenagers? Um, I would think that would, who knows what that does to being able to diagnose this or what it does to them mentally. Well, clearly uh, teenagers are uh, regularly use substances. Most teenagers do, not all teenagers. But uh, what we'll do is we make a distinction between people who are occasional users, say of cannabis or uh, alcohol, versus those who have serious drug problems. Certainly, if you're a heavy user of cannabis, alcohol, or hard drugs like cocaine, you're going to be more predisposed to bipolar episodes, and also you're not going to respond to the medications for them as easily. Uh, now, I think what is important is, is the person self-medicating? Are they using a drug because they're depressed or anxious as part of the disorder? Or is the substance abuse really a primary problem that's separate from their having a mood disorder? What happens to people that use various drugs or alcohol, especially bipolar people, whether they're teenagers or adults? What, how does it affect them differently, perhaps, than people that don't have bipolar? So if you have bipolar disorder and using cocaine or amphetamines, there's a very good chance that's going to send you into a manic episode. Um, likewise, if you're using heavy amounts of alcohol, that can precipitate depressive and anxious episodes. Some of the other drugs, like methamphetamine, can also be associated with psychosis. LSD has been shown to uh, precipitate psychosis in people who have vulnerabilities like bipolar disorder. Marijuana uh, is a little bit less clear whether that actually, uh, whether people respond differently if they have bipolar disorder. I think it depends upon the amount of use. If they're using it frequently, they're going to see sleep disturbance, loss of motivation, uh, and uh, more anxiety than the, the typical person might. So yes, you, if you have that disorder, we usually recommend people stay away from substances altogether, but if they're going to use, to use it frequently. Well, I guess it's recommended to stay away from substances that aren't drugs that are given, but what, okay. what are the drugs that are given and how do they work typically for bipolar people? The medications? All right. Yeah, so, what, what our, kind of medication? Sure. so our old standby is lithium, which is a, a salt. You'll find it on the periodic table of the elements. And it has been around for a long time now, about uh, 50, 60 years it's been in use. It, um, it basically is good at preventing manic episodes. It's reasonable at preventing depressive episodes, but it not, it's not nearly as good at preventing depressions as it is manias. So people often uh, take lithium. It also has a benefit in terms of suicidality. It can reduce people's suicides or attempts. Uh, it has some side effects. Uh, people feel bloated. They feel like their emotions are kind of flattened out. Um, they may have a shaking of their hands. They may need to urinate frequently. Uh, so it's not the world's easiest medication to take, but it's probably the most effective overall. We have other mood stabilizers. We have one called Lamotrigine or Lamictal, which uh, tends to be easier to take side effect-wise, tends to be better for the depressive bipolar of the disorder, 
It's not as good as lithium for the manic pole. Uh, we have a whole series of antipsychotic medications. Uh, they have names like um, lorazidone or latuda. Um, we have quetiapine or seroquel. We have Abilify, Aripiprazole, it's also called. They are all uh, antipsychotics that also have mood-stabilizing properties. They tend to make a person more tranquil, uh, sometimes at the cost of some lethargy. So we often see people on combinations of mood stabilizers and uh, antipsychotics. Um, if I can go a little further that, um, one uh, big issue in bipolar disorder is whether you should recommend a standard antidepressant like Prozac, for example, or Zoloft. Uh, they have a mixed record in bipolar disorder, partly because first, if you have the disorder, you don't want to take them alone. You don't want to take just an antidepressant because they can trigger manic episodes or what we call rapid cycling of going from one pole to the other frequently. It is seems to be reasonably safe and fairly effective to combine an antidepressant with a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic. So we, we think about combination treatments as being the most useful in those cases when someone's not responding. How, how often do these help versus not or make things worse? What's the track record of the various combos of medication for people? Yeah. Now, it's quite complicated because there are so many different combinations. Uh, lithium by itself has a, a record of about 60 to 70% in terms of about 70% of people respond to lithium uh, with fewer episodes and fewer symptoms. Similar rates of efficacy in uh, the antipsychotics. Uh, sometimes you get a, a more of a benefit by combining two of them. So, for example, if you combine olanzapine, as an, an antipsychotic, with Prozac, you get a combination which we call Symbiax, and that's been found to be effective in preventing depression. But there's still about a third of the people uh, who don't respond to those medications, who have some sort of more resistant form of depression. And then we have to think a lot more creatively about what to do. And there are some other treatments that are coming down the pike for uh, for people who haven't responded to standard medications. So what's in the this bipolar guide? What, what kind of recommendations or assistance is there in it? So the purpose of the bipolar disorder survival guide is really twofold. One is to it's for, it's for the person with the disorder and their family members. It's a guide to try to help them understand what is bipolar disorder, what are the symptoms, how is it diagnosed, what is a doctor going to do for you, what are the medications used to treat it, what are the psychotherapies used to treat it. So it's informational on one hand, but it's also very practical in offering skills. How do you manage this disorder on your own when you're not seeing a doctor? For example, one way is to manage one's sleep-wake cycle, to keep regu very regular, almost regimented sleep and wake time so that you're uh, not messing with your mood in terms of uh, your sleep cycle. Another is to track one's mood over time and trying to determine if there are certain stressors that are triggering highs and lows. Uh, there is a whole segment on communicating with one's family, one's, one's family member, members uh, who often are very confused about what's going on and how to help um, and who also get stressed out themselves by the disorder. There's a section on work. Uh, how do, do you disclose this in the workplace? And if so, what are the potential consequences? What are the potential benefits? Uh, how do you deal with suicidality? What are things to do when you're feeling like ending your life or your life isn't worthwhile? There are some strategies that can help 
So all, all this is is placed in kind of uh, uh, self help form. That, that's the. What, what about the um, the mindset of the person experiencing bipolar disorder? I've heard that they don't remember sometimes when they're in a depressed mode what they've said, and you know they say like really horrible things to other people sometimes, or they're in a manic mode, same thing. What do you see about uh, their cognition and their uh, ability to remember? Sure. Uh, when we see the most difficulty with memory about episodes is when there's also psychosis involved. So if a person has a manic episode with full-blown delusions or hallucinations, so for example, they have special powers or than God or have developed some superior form of intelligence, they may say some very cutting things to other people or uh, things that are irrational, but they may not remember that they said those things. Uh, I think what family members learn to do over time is to look at those uh, thoughts as evidence that the person is getting ill and needs to be seen, needs to get into the see their psychiatrist. Uh, on the depressive end of things, people have a tendency to be very self-blaming, very self-critical, uh, and can also be quite angry with others or uh, other people's attempts to help them, which sometimes aren't so helpful. You know, people say things to bipolar people like, why don't you just get up and, and do it? Why don't you stop laying around in bed? That could be very cutting to a person who has severe depression and is not able to motivate themselves. So I think it really goes both ways. But uh, you have to give the person a certain amount of leeway because when they're in those states, they may not fully be cognizant of how they're relating to others. Well, what can you do? I mean, if, if they don't remember sometimes um, and they come out of it, what do you do? Is the person that was there that wasn't experiencing and remembers all that, maybe they don't. And now maybe they're acting normal and, and happy. Yeah. You know, the other person is still carrying the, uh, you know, what happened. It's a good question. So let, let's imagine for a second we're talking about a spousal pair where the person with the disorder and his or her spouse, they maybe they said something during the episode like, you know, I'm not attracted to you anymore. I want to marry someone else. Well, I never was attracted to you in the first place. And they're full of ideas and all the things are going to improve their life. Then they're better. And, uh, you know, they don't remember saying that. And the spouse is really hurt. There are a couple of things you could do in therapy. First, uh, you need to get the person to acknowledge that they said it and to make amends in whatever way makes sense to, in that couple ask, you know, beg forgiveness. They may need to write a letter. They may need to sit down with their spouse, with a therapist there, and what it was like at those moments and why their thoughts were rational and how they really feel. Encourage the spouse to talk about how hurtful this was and uh, you know the thoughts they had perhaps of leaving uh, because of it or how it may, made them feel badly about themselves. But then eventually in therapy, you want them to be able to move on and develop new communication skills. So how are they going to talk in the future when the person is clearly going into an episode and the spouse sees it? Can they? Are there things the spouse can say that are going to get the person in to see their doctor or make them more self-aware of how they're coming across? Uh, there are some things the spouse can say that will be more effective. Uh, so I try to focus them on what are you going to do going forward, not to get stuck on what the person did when they were in their in their illness phases. Oh, um, if the person doesn't remember, though, you tell them you said this, and they say, no, I didn't, um, wouldn't that just feed into like paranoia about themselves? Like, How do you do this so that it doesn't further destabilize the person or make, you know, throw them into a maybe a suicidal way? You no, know, oh, since I did that, I'm going to kill myself because 
you know, I'm a horrible person, that kind of thing. I haven't seen that happen too much, but I could tell you that if it if it did happen, what I would probably do is I would encourage the spouse in this case to not get stuck on getting the person to acknowledge it. If they don't remember it, I don't think it's going to help to try to you know force them into recognizing they said this. But nevertheless, the spouse should say, I was hurt because that's what I heard. And even if you don't remember it, that's that's what I say, say has happened. And I, we need to talk about our relationship. We need to talk about how we're going to cope moving forward, whether you remember these episodes or not. It's really very much like what happens in alcohol. People are drunk. They say all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And they may not remember the next morning. What do you, what do you say to them? Uh, you know, you, you were dancing on the table and you were making passes at people and saying inappropriate things, saying racist things, whatever. Uh, uh, the next day, they may not have any recollection of that. They still need to apologize and uh, you know make amends with the person who they uh, they uh, alienated. Otherwise, you can get the situation where people are just losing friends one after another because they don't understand what the person's going through. With bipolar disorder, it's so cyclic. People can go in and out of these episodes frequently. Well, you mentioned uh, keeping your sleep schedule regimented as one help. Uh, what are other things people can do in addition to medications? Uh, to help themselves be more stable and have less, you know, amplitude on their cycles, let's say. Yep. Okay. Well, again, sleep-wake cycle. Um, Eating a healthy diet is showing up as more and more important. Uh, Not a particular diet necessarily, but not eating too much sugar or too much fat. Uh, Eating regularly, not just, you know, certain times of the day. Uh, And uh, with that, I would say physical exercise is very important, particularly for staving off depressions. So keeping an active lifestyle, even if you don't work out regularly at the gym, being uh, active, taking walks, um, not relying on cars only. And uh, uh, especially when you're in down states, it's very much harder to get yourself to exercise, but it's so important and really can help with mood. I recommend people keep track of their mood with an app. There are many apps for tracking one's moods where you can do, just do it in a paper diary so that you know how much is it fluctuating? Uh, are these medications really stabilizing me or are some of them uh, making me less stable? That's also possible. So just having a, a, a running record of one's moods, uh, staying away from alcohol and drugs as much as possible because especially if you've got symptoms currently of bipolar disorder, that's going to make them a lot worse. Uh, having uh, effective communication with one's family, uh, being able to reduce conflict and be able to let things slide, to be able to communicate about what kind of mood state they're in, uh, explain to people how clinical depression is different from regular old sadness. Uh, so, and then keeping a structure to one's day, I think, is very important. Of course, if you're if you're working that may come naturally, but for people who aren't working, there need to be things they can look forward to during the day so they don't sit and ruminate. Um, A meditation practice we're seeing more and more is a a good thing for people with bipolar disorder for cutting through anxiety and depression. Um, So I think there are a lot of skills like that that one can use. With someone, uh, you know, let's say they're in a relationship for a long time and, you know, their partner is bipolar, what could they say? Like, how could they name it? They say like, oh, you know, you're in the storm again, you know, honey or so. And so I see it, you know, just letting you know, 
Is there, if, if it's recognized by a couple, let's say, or by a you know, parent and child, how can that help? Does the bipolar person have any control or wherewithal to, um, right. I don't know, to modulate their mood when they're going either manic or depressed? So first, how that's presented to the person, uh, they should have input into how it's presented to them. If they know what they can hear and they can't hear when they're entering a depressive or a manic phase, um, hearing, you know, you're getting manic again may not be the answer. Uh, it, saying something like, I mean, noticing you're starting to speed up and talk faster, staying at the behavioral level may be less threatening. Or um, it, uh, the other thing spouses and parents often say is, did you take your medication today? And that can be like poison to somebody with bipolar disorder because they, you know, they know the family wants them to take medications. They have ambivalence about their medications. And even though they may be taking them, to be reminded of them all the time makes them feel like a patient and they no longer have an adult relationship with their family members. So um, I think getting the patients, the person with the disorder's uh, input from family members is really, really critical. And uh, to be able to say, look, I want you to, I want, I'd like to go with you to see your doctor so I can share some of these observations. You may need a change of medications. I don't want you to go into the hospital, but I do want to protect you. And I know you're angry at me for saying this stuff, but uh, you know I need to be there. This is part of my role in loving you as a spouse or a parent to make sure you get healthy, uh, you know, get your health care. Now, the person may be totally resistant to that. And in mania, people tend to just say, well, the hell with you. I'm not going to follow your advice. And they leave where they get trouble with the police. And then they get brought in by the police or get in a car accident. And, you know, that could be quite traumatic for everyone. So I think family members have some leverage here to try to communicate with the person if they can figure out how to say it without alienating the person. But that's where a therapist, I think, can really come in handy is helping you work through things like that when the person's well. Like, let's role play what you might say, and how would you respond if she said it like this? Uh, I've done that with many of many families, and then they can bring that out when it's actually happening. Okay, well, what about this family-focused therapy that you spoke about? Let's tell them that a bit. We uh, currently offer 12 sessions. And actually, we're doing most of it by telehealth now. Uh, so many people just zoom in from their uh, their living room. It's easier for them to get the family together. They don't have to go to the university and park and all that. There are some disadvantages to it, but I can get into that later if you want. There are three components. One is what we call psychoeducation, where we really try to get the person with the disorder to share with the family what it's like to have manic and depressive episodes. What is what does it feel like? Uh, how does sleep get affected? Why does a person get suicidal or have these negative thoughts? And, or why do they feel so full of energy? How do they know if it's coming on? The family wants to talk about that as well. Here's what I saw in your last episode. Here's the first sign I had that things were getting worse. We help them develop what's called the relapse prevention plan, where they put down, uh, okay, let's figure out what your early warning signs are. Uh, which might be something like you're just sleeping less or you're talking fast. You know, are there any triggers present in the environment that might be setting that episode off? And what can you and what can we do to keep it from spiraling out of control? Uh, well, going to see the doctor is one thing, but maybe us all getting on a more regular sleep-wake cycle could help as well. 
maybe some help with filling medication prescriptions, um, or if it's depression, engaging in activities with the person or exercising with them. Uh, you can develop a whole plan with the family that, that's then implemented. The second and third phases are much more oriented around communication and solving problems related to the disorder. So I gave you an example earlier. How do we talk about mania or depression when you're in that phase? If I'm upset by something you're doing, what are good ways for me to ask you to change your behavior? How do we negotiate as a family, given that you've got these mood problems? And often other people in the family have the mood problems as well, because this runs in families. How do we negotiate conflict? Uh, what's, a, what's a clear way to make a message or send a message? And is there positive feedback being given as well as negative? Or is it all negative? Um, and importantly, how to listen. When someone's in pain, what are good ways to show you're listening? But rather than jumping in with advice, being able to listen and paraphrase and ask questions and show empathy. Uh, so, And then finally, problem solving. The specific problems in, with people in bipolar disorder is often getting back to school or getting back to their previous roles, work roles, family roles, uh, and all the, uh, all the impediments to doing that. So how do we get my old job back that I lost during my episode? Or do I want that job still? How do I get help do, putting together a resume? Um, do I feel ready to go back to work? Uh, or am I feeling too cognitively impaired right now because of the episode. Family can help with problem solving. Uh, depend, and the problems, of course, depend on how old the person is and their living situation. We see people for 12 sessions. It's usually over four months. And sometimes we do booster sessions after that if the family needs it. But what we hope families will come out with is a better understanding of bipolar disorder and a better way of communicating about it as a family. You must have heard many, many people describe what it's like. Um, so from your perspective, what insights do you have into bipolar? Like, what does it feel like and what's the experience like for the person having it? If it's classic bipolar disorder, it fe really feels like um, you're watching a movie at fast speed. Colors and uh, colors seem brighter, uh, sounds sound louder. Things can seem very beautiful, uh, ordinary things, or... And this may seem different, but it, it's the same condition. One could be extraordinarily irritable and just feel like there are things I want to get done. I have goals. Everybody's getting in my way. Everybody's moving too slowly. Uh, sometimes that goes along with very grandiose goals, like I'm going to change the world. I'm going to uh, cure the social ills of the world, or I'm going to restructure the neighborhood so people can communicate with each other better. Um, all these, these things are in the state of mania, and with that is often staying up late or not sleeping at all, you know, calling people up over the phone uh, for in all hours of the night, even though one hasn't talked to them in years. Uh, it's, a, it's a very hyperactive state, and when they're depressed, everything is the opposite. It seems slowed down. Everything seems drab. Uh, colors seem drab. People seem to be talking slowly. You feel like you're moving very slowly. You know, the future feels very dim. Uh, doesn't feel like there's anything you can do. All you want to do is sleep. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And uh, these are, you know, physical states that, unless you've had them, is are very difficult for other people to understand. That's why we spend some time getting people to talk about it and say, "Look, you're the expert in this because you've gone through it." 
other people in the family may not have explained to us what it's like. Uh, how is it different from just being sad? So we don't want parents to be coming in and saying, oh, you know, I've been depressed before. I, you know, I got through it. Why can't you? Well, it may not be the same condition. I just had it in my head. I was going to ask you that. Oh, the dynamic between, this is even worse, but an abusive home and bipolar. Do you, does anyone see that uh, abuse in a home? Yes. You know, verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, exacerbates bipolar or brings it out? Or what does it do to the condition of people that have it? We have some evidence that people with bipolar disorder come uh, from traumatic backgrounds, not only abusive, but have had traumas in their childhood and war. It may have been uh, through some major medical problem, an early loss of a family member, or abuse uh, certainly does occur, uh, partly because it, what runs in families in addition to bipolar disorder is alcoholism. And you may have an alcoholic parent who's also abusive. Uh, and sometimes the treatment of bipolar disorder involves treatment of the trauma. Uh, some, there are a number of different therapies that are around for dealing with trauma, which most of which involves some level of exposure uh, to one's uh, traumatic events. I think the important thing, though, is you don't want to be treating all this stuff at the same time. When the person is currently manic or depressed, you want to get the mood under control before you start coming in with heavy-duty uh, psychological treatments that deal with early childhood trauma. The person should be stable when that occurs. Now, if you come upon a patient who has bipolar disorder who's currently in an abusive home, that's when you have to involve the child services um, or adult services if it's an adult. Um, and uh, have you know an evaluation. You need to make a report. Have an evaluation of the safety of the home, which may lead to recommendations of the kid living somewhere else if it's very pervasive. Uh, which is really no different than what we would do for anyone who is in an abusive home. Right, but does it tend to worsen bipolar, or um, if someone's bipolar and they are in an abusive situation, does it usually get yeah. far worse? Or do they strike back at the person and? Eh. They tend to leave them alone. But... No, I, I would say it's more likely that if they're in an abusive situation, certainly if they're a kid, it's very difficult for them to strike back at a, an assaulter who's a parent uh, or an outside person. Uh, I would put it this way. Stress in general uh, worsens bipolar disorder. Life events, abuse, um, changes in economic situations, loss of a person, uh, an important person, all those sorts of stressors are very related to a free frequency of symptoms uh, and and recurrences of symptoms. We have to make sure we understand when is the person involved in that stress and when did it just sort of happen to them. So loss of a job, for example, could be due to the fact the person has symptoms and is alienating coworkers. But abuse something else that comes from the outside and can trigger an episode in somebody who is vulnerable. Uh, it's an that we're getting more interested in as a field is uh, to what extent does childhood abuse or adversity uh, interact with genetic predispositions in bringing about hmm. the, the disorder. I think you're going to okay. see a lot about that in the next few years. Hmm. Um, can bipolar be cured? Does it ever go away? Are people are, are people able to manage it to the point where it doesn't really affect them anymore? Or is it just kind of a uh, but you can keep the lid on the pot. Yeah. It's a constant struggle for the rest of your life. What's it, what's it like? It's an interesting question. And uh, we we know that if people have had several recurrences of mania and depression, 
chances are they will continue to have them through the life, but it may be that their disorder, their episodes get less severe. And uh, especially if they're being treated, they may go years and years between episodes. A lot of medical illnesses are like that. They're, uh, you know, they're worse at, uh, at early on when they're first contracted and then get me mellow out a bit over time, which is what we often see with bipolar disorder. Interestingly, we just did a study on uh, teenagers who came in with bipolar disorder, and we followed them over uh, a three, two to three year period until some of them were in uh, early adulthood. And some of them were doing great. Some of them looked uh, fairly free of symptoms. They were going to college, had relationships. Uh, now, we don't know if they're cured of bipolar disorder and they'll never have an episode, but clearly the outcome and this is about a third of the people we followed, was pretty good by the time they're in their early 20s. So it may be that there's a subgroup that has the worst uh, functioning in adolescence and then kind of mellows out with time. But so much of this depends upon what social supports are available and whether the person's getting treatment. If they're getting regular treatment, and that's, that's going to reduce episodes. And if they have a supportive environment and some goals, I think they can lead very productive lives, as we've seen from the uh, you know all the writers and musicians who've had this disorder and have you know, functioned very well. We are doing a lot of research these days on what's called early intervention, so working with kids who have the early signs of bipolar disorder and working with their families to share an understanding of what it is and some of these strategies like sleep-wake cycle management and family communication. We are finding we can help prevent at least depressive episodes from occurring in these teens who are vulnerable to uh, to bipolar disorder. So I think one direction is is early intervention. It doesn't have to be with the family, but uh, it has to be something that can be given at scale since so many people are at risk. Mm. Well, very good. Uh, David, what's the best way for people to find out about the family-focused therapy and to look at the papers that you guys are putting out and... Uh, you know, to get in contact, perhaps. I would refer them to our um, our uh, website, uh, which is semel, S-E-M-E-L, dot U-C-L-A dot E-D-U slash CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, uh, which is um, Child and Adolescent Mood Disorders Program. Uh, so it's semel dot U-C-L-A dot E-D-U slash CHAMP. And you'll find... Uh, both descriptive to bipolar disorder books they can read, uh, papers we've written, and a number of other informational sources. Very good. Well, I think it's been a great call, David. Thank you so much for coming on, and I really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Uh, have a good rest of your day. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. 
That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.